Today's episode is brought to you by Bombas Socks. Bombas are the most comfortable, best-fitting socks I've ever worn. They sent me a whole bunch, and I'm really digging them. They have these awesome blister guards on the athletic socks, which are really perfect. Additionally, Bombas donates one pair of socks to those in need for every pair purchased because socks are the number one requested item in shelters across the United States. Right now, you can find out about these great socks for yourself with a 20% discount, plus get free shipping on your first order when you pick four or more pairs of socks. Go to bombas.com, that's B-O-M-B-A-S.com, and you'll get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order of four or more pairs. Bombas has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You love them or your money back, no questions asked. Again, that's B-O-M-B-A-S.com for 20% off and free shipping when you pick four or more pairs. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 179. We're recording on Friday, October 7th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, hello. We better talk about cast. We'll go to the, uh, speaking of the Godfather, we'll go to the mattresses. Um, (laughs) uh, So here's what Casper did. They created one perfect mattress that they could sell directly to consumers. Eliminating the middlemen, the commission-driven, inflated prices you get from you know mat- mattress stores that you see out in the world, brick-and-mortar stores. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and it's delivered in this sort of impossibly small box. It's going to make you say, how, how does this work, size box? <laughs> um, in addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. So your whole sleep stack, you, you can get the whole, the whole setup from Casper. So... He, Here's the deal. I mean, if you've bought a high, these are high end mattresses. If you've ever bought a high end mattress, you know they can cost well over fifteen hundred bucks and and up from there. Casper starts for a twin size mattress at five hundred, seven hundred and fifty for a full, eight fifty for a queen, nine fifty for a king. If you're buying a high end mattress at a king size, you know that's a really really great deal. So there's a special offer for listeners of this show. Go to casper.com slash riot. Go to that URL and use the offer code riot. And you can get 50 bucks towards any mattress right there. Also, if you're worried about, you know, ordering a mattress online, sort of endemically, it doesn't resonate with how we understand mattress buying because you want to try it out, whatever. They offer a 100-night risk-free in-your-home trial. If you don't love it, they pick it up and refund you everything. Um, I've even heard from some people that, the mattress wasn't for them, and they thought it was going to be a big deal to return it. It wasn't, and they recommend it to other people just based on that alone. You know, that try it. You might love, you probably will love it, but if you don't, no risk for it to you. It's all upside for you. So go try them out, casper.com slash riot. Go, go get yourself some uh, new sleep gear. You've been traveling. I have. And you're back. I am. I went to the motherland, and now I am home. The, the biggest controversy of the year. Yeah. I think... Um, trying to think i mean ghost of the watchman was last year mm-hmm. and i'm always in an airport when these things break <laughs> <laughs> that's true um you were traveling for uh, ghost of the watchman mm-hmm. last time as well the, uh, elena ferrante apparently has been uh, unmasked uh, for those of you who don't know um she and i use that in quotation marks because it was a pen name is a pen name still is a pen name um for uh, a writer who wrote the so-called, well, I don't know if they're so-called, maybe they actually refer, it's official, the ne- Neapolitan novels, uh, a, f- a series of four books, basically charting a friendship um, between two Italian girls into young girl, young women into women. Um, it has been a, I'd say, uh, it's interesting, a literary sensation. It hasn't been a reading sensation, I don't think, especially. Um, it hasn't sold, like, girl on the train level. Martian oh, yeah. level, that kind of stuff. But among those of us who read These literary are, fiction, yeah. it's a big deal. It Books has been for, a big deal. like, bookie book people. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the kind of people who read literary fiction. Um, mm-hmm. And even more unusually than a series of literary f- novels that are all about the same family, which is relatively rare in literary fiction, it's also work in translation, um, which... I can't think of the last time a literary work in translation became a huge, at least in America, a huge seller. I, I can't think of what it would yeah, be. Yeah, the, the closest, but I think it's 
arguable if it's a literary thriller or not is the uh, Stieg Larsson series. Yes, yeah, that one. I mean, in terms of things in translation, it's that one. The Alchemist, right? Is that what was that? That sold a million copies. Yeah. Um, Marquez, Gabriel Garcia Marquez has mm-hmm. sold a bunch, but I don't think kind of at one time like this, where this has happened over the last couple of years. Right. This has been a sensation. So a, a unique phenomenon, I, I believe, in, in, in the very specific um, use of that term. And this week, the New York Review of Bush, Books um, published a, I guess, you know, I don't an expose, basically, mm-hmm. where um, a, an Italian reporter got or solicited, otherwise acquired, anonymous from anonymous an anonymous source financial records for Ferrante's publisher that aren't just for Ferrante's books but for a bunch of other publisher uh, excuse me authors at the house and this is Ferrante's Italian publisher so wherever the money is going he does follow the money uh, as you do in you know uh, uh, all the president's men or the Godfather wherever else you might want to go when you you know really trying to get down to brass tacks um, follow the money and see where it goes. And it led to, and if you don't want to be spoiled by this, um, I don't know how we want to do this. How, how should we play this here, Rebecca? I, we didn't talk about this before, but as soon as I was about to say it, I don't know how, because some people don't want to know, and that's part of yeah, the story. Well, right. I think well, maybe we don't we, even say who it is. We maybe this is they found the out. That's, yeah, that's yeah, that they, way, yeah. Right. They like tracked down, essentially like put some clues together based on financial mm-hmm. records to identify... The person Someone, that, yeah. yes, the person that they believe is Elena Ferrante. And this person has previously denied mm-hmm. being the author of the books. So it's not the first time that someone had reason to suspect it was this person. Uh, and, 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 and apparently it was candidate number one among yes. the specular, speculati. When, is that what they said? I don't the know. What sure, let's go with that. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> that's the subject of the next Dan Brown novel, right. After Origin. <laughs> People the just sit around and speculate like about stuff. The right. secret yeah. literary uh, group that unmasks mm-hmm. anonymous authors. Um, and I think, you know, we talked a while ago about how um, it was said to be kind of an open secret, yeah, perhaps. that's in what parts, we had heard. At, at least in parts of Italy, who Ferrante uh, really is. And a lot of people didn't want to know. So uh, much more interesting than who is Elena Ferrante mm-hmm. is what has happened in the aftermath yes. of this piece. Uh, and the man who wrote the piece said that he understood that a good chunk of readers might be upset, but he believed that he was doing his job as an investigative journalist. The mm-hmm. biggest mystery outside Italy about Italy is who is Elena Ferrante. I'm supposed to provide answers. That's what I do for a living. Um, oh, man. It's, it's, and it, I, I would say, tell me if you, your reading of the book, Dernet, is, is different than mine, that the, by and large, the response to this unmasking and digging through financial records has been, this is grody. Yes, I think that's 100% right. That's also my personal read on mm-hmm. it. Um, this is grody. Like he, Gotti says here that he is essentially performing a public service. Like his job as an investigative journalist is to find answers to things that people wonder about. And so he just mm-hmm. thinks that he's doing his duty. Like this sort of smacks of, I did that thing that I knew was wrong, but I was just following orders. Um, yeah, me, I, you know, I like, don't like the it was, it's, it's my job because what if my, your job sucks? Right. right? Like you're, <laughs> what if your job? You know what? what if you shouldn't have that it? What if job you, shouldn't right. be? Right. What if you're just curious and you wanted mm-hmm. to use your position and your access to get an answer? Like at least be honest there. Maybe you wanted some notoriety for having been the one to unmask Elena Ferrante. I have lots of ungenerous feelings about this. I yeah, I think it's. Grody, this is a private individual, you know, who the person allegedly who is Elena Ferrante is not like an elected public official. They don't there's no reason that the public needs to know who Elena Ferrante really is. It doesn't affect anybody. Um, And this writer has obviously taken measures to attempt to remain private and anonymous they like we were talking about dan brown is not in the dan brown business like ferrante is not in the ferrante business Uh, the person behind elena ferrante does not want a public 
life. Mm. And so to, to like to dig into records and solve a mystery that no one has asked you to solve. And that is not like, this is not a public good. Uh, I, I think this is grody uh, and just unnecessary. Yeah. I, I, my my feeling about it is it is it is it is that it is grody. Um, now, if you if you take sort of an infinite time scale look at this, like Fronte is sufficiently popular that she is, and I'm using the she to follow the pen name. I'm trying not to mm-hmm. give away anything about the the quote unquote real author here is a part of literary history, and at some point it would be appropriate to know more about the author, right? I mean, yes, you just you don't. You don't sell this many books and be this influential without becoming a part of history. So then if you become a part of history, that cloak of anonymity just isn't going to hold forever. Now, that doesn't mean that at any point or at all points, the grodiness factor is the same. Um, When this author is dead, maybe it's more appropriate. When this author is 80 years old and says, you know what, it's fine. Um, maybe when there hasn't been a book out for 20, you know, there's a lot of yeah. ways you can look at this. And at some point, I think it, it the timing and approach matters here. The how, ma- the, yes. what, the what is going to happen with this identity situation, but the how matters. And I think that's, yeah. I think that in a lot of the discussion, the, the counter arguments about, well, you know, if you write a book and you sell a bunch of, you know, this is part of the, it's kind of the, the argument people make about paparazzi. And, and I mm-hmm. mean, maybe not surprisingly, another Italian <laughs> derived word. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, if you're if you're going to pay 20 million dollars a year to be in movies. Well, this is just part of the game. Yeah, and I, I don't hold with that uh, no. necessarily. Um, but the how matters. And so we can talk about the how. But I think this especially is interesting and distressing. Um, what else do you want to say about that? That sort of historical point. I mean, do you yeah, agree with that at some I, point it's appropriate? Yes. Like this yeah, isn't, no, you don't I get do. an anonymous I do. forever. I think, um, you know, to unmask somebody at the height of the fever about their thing when they've taken a lot of measures to remain private is just deeply uncool. Um, but I do think at some point, at some point it would be appropriate or at least more appropriate. It's not equal levels of grodiness forever. Mm-hmm, right. It's not like grody all the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, And to that degree, it feels kind of like when a writer dies and someone takes their private papers from the estate and publishes them and says, like, we're publishing this, even though these were supposed to be private. Uh, Jeff is dead now and we're publishing Jeff's papers for the good of literary history. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we you and I tend to fall on the same side of that argument of like the person is dead. Literary history benefits. Let's see these. I I definitely do. I I, I Um, absolutely fall on that side. Let us see these things. Um, Or 20 years down the line when the fever is over, you know, maybe the person behind Ferrante still wants to be private, but it's much less of a frenzy than at the height of the popularity mm-hmm. of the books. But just right now, it's ungood. Um, I also really don't like the particular angle here. And I don't know if it's this way in Italy, but a lot of the speculation that I've seen in the U.S. Booktornet conversation is like, dudes who don't want Ferrante, whose fiction, I, I have not read the books, but I understand the fiction to be very feminist. It is. Uh, and, I, I read the and, first one. Uh, it's funny that I, I finally read the first one while before, just before the story broke. So oh, okay. I can well, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, convenient timing. Yeah. Um, th- and that women love these stories and that they love some of the uh, mm-hmm. particular expressions of female friendships and relationships and female anger and this feminist perspective. And there's been a whole lot of like sort of elbow jokey like what if it turns out that elena ferrante is a dude like the biggest thing in feminist fiction is going to be written by a man won't that be something Mm. um and i don't have any idea if that had to do with this investigative journalist's motivations but there are it's more than just curiosity about who this person is because the stories are more than just stories um in what they mean to people at this point i I think Um, that's absolutely the, the gender stuff is really hard to um, navigate here just because there aren't that many um, antecedents for this kind of anonymous success being unmasked. Uh, right. the, the only one I can think of that's anywhere remotely close is when primary, I mean, also weirdly timely, when primary colors came out, um, which is about the, you know, a, a thinly veiled mm-hmm, novel about the, about the, the Clint, uh, Clinton's first 
presidential campaign in 92, eventually was unmasked as Joe Klein, a high-level advisor campaign sort of. And that was, in, in a way, you could almost argue that that's, that almost was a public good because it was this really mm-hmm. famous, it was about the president of the United States. Right, we needed right, to know yes. how much of this was true and what is that going on That if you live here. in this country and in many parts of the world, you're affected by this person. Right. Yeah. Um, so that one, for, in, in a public good sort of way, also has a different tenor um, because it just wasn't analogous. But that the books themselves are about, largely about women, um, and especially a couple of friends. Um, and that they are not only just about women, they're about being a woman, if that makes sense. Like that, mm-hmm. that is explicitly part of, at least of the first one that I've read, and I, I, I'm given to, to, to understand that the rest of them are like that. The other fascinating thing is the intro to brilliant, uh, My Brilliant Friend, which is the first one, which I just read, is, is kind of a frame story that is written from the perspective of one of the two women in this friendship about the other woman whose lifelong dream is to disappear completely. Huh. Like disappearing from the outset is part of the story. And, um, and Ferrante gave a interview a couple years ago with the times in which he says that part of the, her project is about being, is about absence. Um, which I think is a fascinating wrinkle to this, that this isn't necessarily even just about keeping, I don't know, people off her doorstep, it's about the artistic project mm-hmm. that her being anonymous is also about this this thing she's trying to do, um, which is super interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And well, the artistic violation in that way almost bothers me more than just yeah. sort of I wanted to be anonymous. So there. So whatever. But that 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 she sees it in some way as part of the work she's trying to do is really interesting to me, too. Yeah, I think that's interesting and important as well and really fascinating that you know as soon as we know anything about writers and those writers go out on tour like the first question that anybody asks them at any like any reading you ever go to for a piece of fiction someone is going to ask how much of this is autobiographical or how much of you is in this main character and if she's trying to disappear from her work and have her work considered on its own merits but also have work that's in some way about disappearing Mm -hmm. (laughs) considered on its own merits. This seems to violate the intention of the work Mm -hmm. as well. And more to the, what you were saying about the books being about the experience of being a woman, being a woman is a, is an experience every day of being visible and seen and looked at whether you want to be or not. Um, and for a a woman to want to disappear, like, man, I can relate. Mm. Um, but to want to disappear from public life and to to be a private person is like I think that is a real and valid urge and it's a desire to be respected. But uh, to be exploring that in your work and then to have both your personal privacy and a layer of anonymity that's essential to the work you're doing violated is doubly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I I don't like any I don't like any piece of this. Yeah. Um. I think it's interesting that it was a man who chose to conduct the investigation Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Like not that there might not be female journalists out there who are equally curious and digging in, but um, it feels like it's to me impossible to ignore some of the gender dynamics to it. It, it, I think it's, you know, again, it's one data point, so it's very hard to Mm -hmm. say, but I I think it is interesting too, because like, Again, I, I don't want to psychoanalyze too much, but here I go. That when someone says I don't want to psychoanalyze too, that means that they're about to do it wildly and irresponsibly. So here we go. I mean, in my brilliant friend, which I, I mean, to put my own two cents in in terms of, I, I guess, evaluation. I liked it. I didn't love it. I I really liked it though. Um, uh, I probably will read the the other books in the series, but I wasn't rushing out to get it. But what's one thing that's super interesting to me here as well is. Lila, who is the um, the titular my brilliant friend, like it's written. One woman is writing about this other woman, and the the subject of her writing is the woman who wants to, who has and wants to disappear at the end of her life, but also is the brilliant friend. And this is them growing up, being young girls together in, in Naples. And she is, you know, kind of the I don't know the ingenue of the community, this neighborhood. And she's the smartest girl around, but she also happens to be the most beautiful as well. And as such. She is always 
I mean, talk about male gaze stuff. I mean, it's mm-hmm. all over. It's like these dudes and men and fathers and brothers and uh, teachers and all all along the all along the watchtower. Um, Lila is observed, speculated upon, um, not directly violated yet, but I, I don't know. That might it, she is subject to the men in her community in a very almost exaggerated. Uh, I guess it says on one end of the bell curve, right, of the way women are under the the gaze of men. It's very much like the, she is the one that, you know, almost like kind of in a girl of Ipanema way, like everyone Mm -hmm. turns their head. Like, I feel like the whole community in this little neighborhood in Naples has turned their heads towards Lila and the men especially. And that's part of, that is the story. And the, the only way to control that kind of thing is to become invisible is to disappear right it's the ultimate uh deployment of control is to have no one be able to see you no one to know anything about you no one to um sub no one to subjugate you to their understanding or their inquiry or violation or physical space whatever and so it it is it does add a super interesting layer though to this story um that in the quote-unquote real world a male journalist can't help but get involved. Can't can't mm-hmm. let it go. Cannot yeah, let it go. And it, you know, it's interesting. I'm I, you know, I'm not going to psychoanalyze your right. reading of a book that I haven't read yet. But I wonder in general about the if there's a gap between men's take on these books. Oh, and I would, women's, ass- I would assume so. I would. So assume many so, women yeah. have you know related to them very deeply and loved these books and spoken very highly of them. And I think it's very unusual in literature. And we're only really just starting to get there with music Mm -hmm. and TV. Um, Like in music and TV, we're starting to hear these, uh, like Lemonade is a perfect example. Lemonade is an album by a black woman that is created for black women. Like if I, as a white woman, like it or get something out of it or enjoy it, like that's kind of a bonus and yay for me that I got to listen to an album that was wonderful. But Beyonce made that album for black women. Like that album is not for me. I don't have to like it. She didn't make it so I could like it. Um, we're getting there with television as well. But in literature, we're really, we're not there yet. I don't think with books like Toni Morrison has talked extensively about not writing for a white audience. Mm -hmm. Many writers of color don't write for a white audience, but the critical establishment is is still so largely white that that has not been driven home yet. And it's even further, I think in gender, there are very few, and I'm really struggling to think of any others where we've had the conversation, pieces of fiction that are explicitly written for women about women's experiences Mm -hmm. and that are essentially an F you to the men, to male readers experience. Like I would argue, I would guess slash argue since we're speculating wildly Mm -hmm. anyway, that these books are not written for male readers at all. And that like, if you read them and you get something out of it or you enjoy the experience, like that's a thumbs up. Um, but that it, that how a male experience, how a dude experiences Ferrante is potentially irrelevant. I'm sure it's complete. And I don't mean to make it that the whole, that the main point of the book is about being subject to, to, to male gaze. That's, I don't think that's the case, but it's an integral part of what's going on, at least in my reading of it, which is adds this other layer of... Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I don't know, frustration um, or outrage. I mean, I guess ranging from annoyance to outrage about unmasking Ferrante. Um, or that like you have a right to know who this person is who yeah. doesn't want you to know. Um, it's a cousin... Like a man doing this to a woman writer, it feels to me like a cultural cousin of the guy who follows you down the block, despite the fact that you don't want to take his phone number. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and it does seem to me that there's sort of this veneer of what we said at the beginning, that there's this historical public interest piece. Like there is that. And I, and I do admit it's hard to disentangle, right? This, you know, you're part of history, but there may be. On the other hand, maybe you're not, maybe you're not, maybe you're not, maybe you should have the right to not be part of history if you don't want to be like, maybe that's not the bargain you have to make to write stories. And I mean, I mean, the other thing that's hard to know is did Fronte have any idea that these books would be, I mean, did she really going into this? You just can't expect this to be the case, right? Right. If you publish a book 
with the belief that you're about to be the next big sensation, you're almost always definitely going to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, because just just data (laughs) sets alone, statistically. So in a way, she may have gotten, I'm sure, certainly gotten much more than she ever could have imagined in terms of exposure and money and publicity and... um. You know, probably the the most likely outcome of this literary project was no one cares, or or a very small group of people mm-hmm. cares. Which is the most likely outcome of most of any of it. Let projects. alone if you're an Italian <laughs> yeah. writing, you know, these little books in Italy. You you don't have any sense. You're gonna. This article says there's 2.6 million copies of her books in print in English language. I mean, that is enormous hit that mm-hmm. no one could have predicted. So that the bargain she was making about her name. I don't think she knew she could. You, you couldn't be reasonably expected to know this is what's going to happen, right? If the argument is, well, this is a best-selling book and there's millions of people reading it and she should have known that this is what would happen. I, I, think that's, I think that's crazy talk because it can't sure, possibly have been the case that she's like, no, well, I'm gonna, I guess I'm just going to have to deal with it if four million people. I mean, this is absurd. Well, like part of existing in the world and of putting work out into the world is not that you owe the world any piece of your life or your image or your body. It's it's just right. not. You know, when we we talk on there's a lot of back and forth online about the use of aliases and mm-hmm. should people be allowed to use aliases on Facebook and Facebook has gone back and forth on that and it's for many people it's an issue of safety of that if they are going to express themselves online in a way that's true or authentic or is an element of their life that they for some reason feel the need to conceal from people that they know face to face then they you know have a a right to do that and to protect themselves and no one else has like we we don't just have a right to know things about her because we're curious um and i think that's the core of it is this guy does not have a a right to unmask a person who wants to remain private she ferrante's not a politician she's not trying to hold public office she's not doing anything that affects anybody else you know you get to choose if you're going to read her books you can ignore them. Mm -hmm. Her existence does not affect you unless you opt into it. And even then it's a a piece of work and she's trying to separate herself, the writer from the work and have the work considered on its own. It sounds like for layers of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But the core of it is that nobody has a right to this person's life uh, or story or anything that she doesn't choose to make available. Mm -hmm. Um, What like if she had chosen to, you know, write a letter that they could make into the foreword of the book in 20 years. She wants to unmask herself or after she dies, if they want to, you know, reveal who she was and add information. Sure. But for as long as this human being wants to remain private and conduct her life, I just don't think that our curiosity overrides uh, at all the importance of the role that her books are playing in history or even in the current historical moment. Okay. Um, I guess the other thing we haven't done about the Ferrante story, I know there's there's a million different angles on this, is do we buy um, Redacted as the right person? Like, were you convinced? Did you read the whole thing? Yeah, I read the whole thing um, and all the pieces surrounding it. I, I Maybe, I guess I don't care. Like, I don't. I don't want to care who yeah. Ferrante is because I, I want to respect it. But also, I haven't read the books yet, so I don't have that element of like, who is this person? Yeah. Um, I, I think that the writer makes a pretty good case. It's all circumstantial evidence. There's no um, smoking gun here. Yeah. I hope that the person that he names is just going to deny it up and down forever and ever and ever and ever. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, I think the circumstantial evidence is pretty compelling um, that this is the person. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. the, the amount in royalties this person got corresponds yeah. Both in scale and in timing to the rise of the, the novels as being a thing. So the lesson out there for any of um, you uh, aspiring translated international bestselling is have your royalties paid to your lawyer who is who is um, bound by confidential. Because that's the only if this was paid into an LLC or in directly mm-hmm. into a trust or something, there, there'd be a dead end. So there you go. Yep. You can do that. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I hope that. Ferrante will not give him the satisfaction of, yes, it's me. You know, like I can see, you know, a publicist being like, well, take, you know, come out, say it's you control the story, control the information. And maybe there's a, there is a case to be made for that if you're now willing to be a public person. Uh, But if, 
if she yeah. wants to remain private, just deny, 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 deny. I mean, for an American reader, I will say this, like, it's not a name that we're going to know enough about to really it matter versus a pseudonym. <laughs> I mean, right. I guess if you believe this, it does answer the gender question, the, I think, mm-hmm maybe not even implicit, I mean, maybe even explicit sexist question of if this is a dude. I, I'm not really sure how to parse this. That never, I, on my own, it never occurred to me to wonder if it was a guy, but I, I don't know. People are weird. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I don't I, I, I just don't know. We, we also, of course, missed um, the, the most recent famous pen name, which was uh, Galbraith. I just realized that we completely f- forgot that. Rowling. Oh yeah, we yeah we talked about that when it happened, yeah. but it came out in such a different way. Like J.K. Rowling was talking about being Galbraith to people, and it sort of leaked through someone who shouldn't have leaked anything. Well, I um, no, it was it was the spouse of one of her lawyers. Oh, that's right, right. That's right. So mind. it was there had been some textual analysis, right? Remember that? Like someone had yeah, had yeah. sort of said there's something weird going on, and put it through a machine and said, "Well, it looks like it could be um, J.K. herself," and then. At a cocktail party, I think the mm-hmm. wife or the husband, yeah. I, can't, I don't remember the, the gender split. Anyway, the, the partner of someone who was on the law firm is like, oh, did you know? Boy, uh, yeah, like this Robert Calbraith is. And then it blew up from there. So it didn't have, it was unmasking, but it didn't have the same sort of, I don't know. It wasn't like investigative journalism. Yeah. There feels no, right, like, right. like gossip is insidious in its own ways. Um but this like investigation right. to unmask a person who's really trying to be private. And those novels weren't selling. I mean, that, right. that's the other thing. It was like, those novels weren't selling. Rowling did that anonymously, anonymously for d- reasons different than Ferrante is doing it. She right. was already a public person. Um, you know, I, she would have preferred that. I think it stayed uh, anonymous clearly that cause she wasn't mm-hmm. doing anything about it, but it doesn't feel like the same kind of, feels like a violation. I mean, that's, I don't know another, way, another word to yeah, think of, no, it feels like a violation. violation. Um, certainly of her wishes, um, likely of her um, artistic and personal life, and, you know, even um, even sort of historical violation in a way. Because um, that's the other thing that's interesting here is that the, the journalist gets in the way, becomes part of history by doing this work, right? It, it does, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the old... Uh, you know, if you get involved in the experiment, you affect the experiment. Right. Um, and I'm sad for Fra- I'm sad for Ferrante. I really yeah, am. Yeah, I think this sucks. I think it sucks. I'm sad for. I mean, the readers, the Ferrante, they didn't want to know. I, I guess I care less about that um, myself. But I think it sucks. Someone who did something that's resonating with millions of people um, didn't bargain for it, didn't want it, um, couldn't have possibly expected it, made it explicitly part of her work, uh, given public interviews under a pen name about wanting to remain anonymous and we couldn't let a lie. Couldn't do it. Yeah. It's I'm yeah. It's a violation in a lot of ways. Um, and there's just, it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Like this is just the satisfaction of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, you know, um, if 20 years down the line, these books are still a sensation that we're talking about. Cause like one thing that we also know about literary history is that the thing that is hot in the moment yeah, you don't very know. rarely is the thing that stands the test of time. And, um, that we continue to talk about, like it might not matter in 20 years who Elena Ferrante was, um, yeah, it and who might knows not, what mattering even means. Like right, I, yeah, it might I don't not be historically right. important, but this is a private person who wanted to, continue to be a private person and to have that violated in this way is it's it's grody mm-hmm. we'll, we'll just go back to the headline the headline is grody it's grody yeah it's grody and I, i'm i'm disappointed in new york review of books for publishing it yeah i really am. i really am disappointed i mean t- i mean they always are in the worst they're among the the worst actors in the vita counts mm-hmm. um you know i don't know whether a bunch of dudes that okayed this i'm sure there was no woman along the editorial chain that was like thinking about it out yeah, loud. i just because there, there just it, aren't any there yeah and the whole like well this is just part of what you get if you become 
famous is it doesn't have to be that you, you don't know, have to be the it, one it doesn't you don't have, have to, to be it. and also i have yet to hear a like this is just part of the deal argument about anything that actually holds water like we routinely hear like well if you don't want to be called names on twitter get off twitter no, that's just that's part of part. existing on the internet yeah. like no it's not i have a right to be treated like a human and and so do you and we it's really easy especially when a person is remaining anonymous to forget that that's a human being on the other end of the twitter or who created these books that you have read or who's behind this sensation but like that to me is the thing that's at the core of this this is a human being who wanted to remain private and who took extensive measures to mm. do that and you have violated this um the most generous reading is that you violated it genuinely believing that exposing her contributes something to history and answers a question right at the least generous end is that you wanted the notoriety of having been the person who figured out literary who paparazzi. it was that's what yeah. you are you're literary and, paparazzi right. yeah and none of the none of the places on the spectrum in between are really places that you want to live no. um, but it's uh, it's just it's not it's not necessary we don't we don't need this. And I think it sets a terrible, like this is a terrible precedent to set as well of all of this coverage and getting published somewhere like the New York Review of Books. If you if you go do this, um, what art might we miss out on? Because someone who wants to create anonymously feels that they can't um, yeah, because and of it's, this guy. It's not an angle I've ever really considered. I mean, I'm trained as a literary historian, so you'd think I would have thought about this, but it's just not part and parcel of how we think about literary history that, or criticism even, I guess more specifically, mm-hmm. that the the author can't, I mean, be that there's even space for an anonymous author. Like what, what doors does it open artistically if you could know that your, your identity wouldn't be tied to a work of art? I mean, it certainly mm-hmm. must have consequences. Like I don't even know what those things are. Um, well, and you know, to a lesser degree, very many of the romance writers that we know no, that's personally yeah. are writing under pen names, pen names because right. they, many of them have day jobs. Mo- actually, most of them have day jobs. And if you're like, you know, a serious corporate attorney, and you know the stigma that people have about romance writing in particular, you want to protect yourself, and so they write under pen names and take measures to separate their literary artistic lives from their pay the bills, you know, face to face working lives. And they have a right to do that. Um, that it's, this is on the spectrum of doxing and it, right. It's, it serves the ones doing the exposing. Mm -hmm. Uh, it does nothing I think, but harm the person being exposed. You know, now I think about it too, we were just saying that she couldn't have possibly anticipated the level of fame, um, and success that her books would have had. So that she chose to use a pen name, even knowing probably no one would care, mm-hmm. is super interesting. Like, even whatever little amount of attention she probably could have anticipated just by having books out in the world. Sure. She didn't want to be a part of whatever it is she was thinking about. Um, a fascinating story. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to let my purient sort of... Uh, reader interest get in the way of the top level story which is it's too bad it's really it's really a shame that's the only way i can i can sum it up it's a real shame um going into it all right let's go into things that aren't shame i'm sure i'm sure let us know if you have an opinion you know what what you thought uh, um you know i'm sure their traffic was huge and everyone got rewarded for doing it i hope you enjoyed your clicks that day and where yeah i hope you did too i i i didn't link to them for critical linking on purpose i linked to a new yorker piece sort of bemoaning um the, the story. So I tried to avoid my links, whatever meager amount of clicks I could uh, funnel away or towards them. Um, National book finalists. Yeah. Good things. Good things. Um, I mean, they're half the list that we talked about a little bit last time or the time before I'm bad about remembering the short lists are out. Um, no surprise. I think on the fiction that Whitehead, um, the underground railroad mm-hmm. stuck through Jackie Woodson's uh, Jacqueline Woodson. Um, another Brooklyn's also on there. News of the World by Paulette Giles. The Association of Small Bombs by Karen Mahajan, something like that, I think. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard anyone say that out loud. Uh, and the throwback special by Chris, Chris Batchelder, which is a tricky name. Yeah. Um, let's see. Among the nonfiction. Yeah, let's uh, I mean... Take a look at that. I mean, I was going to say, I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. is there anything among the finalists that you especially wanted to shout out? Um, I mean, Colson Whitehead, I think, is the obvious yeah. 
front runner here on fiction, but Jacqueline Woodson, I've heard great things about another mm-hmm. Brooklyn. Um, and the association of small bombs seems to have been sort of a, like it's gaining ground yes. still. I've, I've been hearing more and more about it in the last couple of months. It's coming out in paperback soon. Um, so it's had, you know, about a year out in the world already. Uh, Liberty raved about news of the world on uh, the All the Books show last week. The throwback special is the one that I don't know anything about. Nothing. Um, I know nothing about it. On this list. I'm going to be so surprised if anybody but Colson Whitehead wins any awards this I year, am too. I think. Like, we should just maybe pack up 2016 and hand it to him already. I think the rare double-double of the NBA Pulitzer is very much in play for that book. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I, I very much in play. And and NBCC, the National Book Critics Circle mm-hmm. Award, the pen one is always a, a bit of a... That yeah. one's a more of a roulette wheel. But, a little um, wild card. Of what I've read and just... It's a titanic work. It's I mean, just it, going to be really hard. Really to hard touch to beat. Colson really Whitehead. Beat. And I haven't read a lot of these other books, and maybe they're really under the radar stuff that you know we should we would put up there. But boy, I've read a lot of literary fiction in my day, and mm-hmm. you don't get too many like this in a given year. You really don't. Yeah, it's just a remarkable book. I'm going to try to read the rest of the finalists in the next. Yeah, couple I, of I, I'm going um, to. I'm going to read I, another book. Brooklyn's on my list. I definitely am going to get to that. Mm-hmm. On the the other one that um, I heard a lot of. I saw a lot of Twitter chatter about is a lot of people seem interested in the young people's award too. Um, Jason Reynolds is still in the running for ghost. Uh, mm-hmm. Nicola Yoon's the son is also a star. Grace Lynn's when the sea turned to silver. Um, the March, which is, I believe a graphic novel, mm-hmm. the third in a volume, um, John Lewis, Andrew Aiden and Nat- Nate Powell. Yes, it isn't the John Lewis who longtime silver act- civil rights activist and congressperson um, about civil rights and then Kate Camillo's uh, Ramey Nightingale. Um, pulling for Meg Medina didn't make the long list. Oh, excuse me, short list. Pulling for Kwame Alexander didn't make the long the short list, but still um, an honor to be mentioned yeah, there. Good and interesting list there. I don't know nearly as much about those. I don't know any of the poetry finalists. No, I don't either. Oh, speaking of poetry, I have a, a weird follow-up thing. Um, you know, I, so Publishers Weekly just redid how they report their top 20, 25 bestsellers. Oh, and yeah. They, is this going to be about Milk, and, milk honey? and Honey? It is. They now have, they now don't break it out into trade paperback fiction. It's just all trade paperbacks. Oh, interesting. So you can get, you know, uh, you get, well, I saw um, uh, Black Panther Volume 1 was on there mm-hmm. and um, Milk and Honey was on there. So we have a way to chart some of those things that we don't have a way to before, but uh Anyway, I thought that was interesting. I'm going to check in periodically. Also there, um, speaking of follow-up on book sales, we talked about um, Love Warrior, Oprah's second yes. fall pick. Glenn and Doyle Melton. Not selling nearly as well as the Underground Railroad. Looks like about half as much, um, all okay. told. Nonfiction, I don't know if that matters. I don't know if, you know, all, the, all of the, there was a, if there was pent-up demand for an Oprah pick and you have, you fought one follows hard upon another, so there's not quite as much interest. I don't know, but I thought you'd be interested in that as well. Yeah, I am interested in that. Um, oh, yeah, there's a lot to speculate about there too. Love Warrior, definitely like geared towards women, self-helpy memoir. Mm-hmm. It and The Underground Railroad are challenging reads, but for different yeah. reasons. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I got, we, we have to talk about our next sponsor. Do it, do it. Tell me. Because we got Ferrante fever. Uh, so the next sponsor this week is The Other Einstein by Marie Benedict. This is a fascinating uh, idea for a novel. I first heard about it at Book Expo. It's about Maleva Marich, uh, who was always a little bit different from other girls. Uh, she, you know, when she was 20, uh, she, most of the other 20-year-olds were wives. They were not studying physics at an elite Zurich university with only male students uh, trying to outdo their clever calculations, but she was smart enough to know that for her, math was easier uh, than marriage was. And then her fellow student, Albert Einstein, took an interest in her and the world turns sideways. Uh, Theirs became a partnership of the mind and of the heart, but there might not be room for more than one genius in a marriage. Uh, So Maleva Marriage's story, this is a real conversation starter about women's roles in society, as well as specifically in math and science. And there is this long running controversy behind the theory of relativity and some of Einstein's other theories that assert that uh, Maleva had a large role in developing all of them, but got no credit because 
history and patriarchy, uh, and that she did extent. And so Marie Benedict did extensive research to add authenticity to the story. So The Other Einstein is a novel. Um, it's a perfect book club pick, but it's based on Einstein and his wife, Maleva Marich. Uh, you're bound to get great conversations out of it. There have been other novels that have told the story of a strong woman who stands behind a very famous man. Uh, but this one has the added element that Maleva Marich is as intelligent as Einstein, if not more. She is not just a supporting character. Uh, so check out The Other Einstein by Marie Benedict. It's available now wherever books are sold, or we will have a link to it in the show notes for you. Cool. Let's do some cool stuff. Um, okay. You know, the, the uh, let's see. We Need Diverse Books is launching a curated app. I did not anticipate this coming, though. Once I saw it, I was like, oh, this is a really smart idea. So it's called Our Story, um, O-U-R Story. And it's going to have a database of more than 1,200 curated books reflecting diverse characters and themes that librarians, educators, parents, and children can search for um, can search for reading recommendations. Mm-hmm. I, the emphasis was incorrect there. Um, and <laughs> on the wrong it's, syllable. It's on, the, on the wrong syllable. Uh, it's coming in January 2017. It's going to be on the internet. So I guess it'll be a sort of a web app and for iPhone and Androids. So that's really cool. Yeah, I am in the same camp there. I would not have guessed that the next project from We Need Mm -hmm. Diverse Books was going to be an an app, but this makes a ton of sense. Um, And it gives them a way to, you know, shine a light on uh, publishers who are putting out diverse books and make it much easier for people who want to be reading diversely and celebrating stories uh, by and about marginalized groups to do that. On a, cool. on a business side, um, there's an option that you can buy the books from preferred bestseller, bu- from preferred mm. booksellers there. And maybe there's some sort of affiliate or rev share thing going on there. And there'll also be two versions, our story and our story pro. Our story is a parent, sort of a consumer facing one um, for, for rubes like you and I. Um, <laughs> and then our story pro is for pros, you know, professional educators, librarians, book people. Um, I'm, Presumably, that will be subscription-based. Yeah. Though it doesn't say here uh, what the pricing or anything like that will be. Really good resource. Um, I'm smart that's tiered. They can get in for free and mm-hmm. have access to it there as part of their mission there as a, as a nonprofit to make information and stories uh, more widely read and available, but also that they can fund some of their ongoing work if they have a pro version. 1,200 books. I'm trying to think. Does that... I mean, I'm surely the, once they've got the database set up, they can add more and more. It kind of seems honestly like a small number to yeah. start with, but it's a minimum you viable know, product, I guess. It does seem like a small number to start with, except when you think about like those numbers that we see from the um, Children's Council Book Center right, every right, year right, right. about what they a just tiny that percentage. Yeah. Right. There just aren't that many books published in any given year that are by and about people of color. And like I've said, I think it was on this show, maybe it was on all the books that like about 6% of the books that I get in the mail in a year are by people of color. Um, and I get like a hundred books a month. Um, so to come up with 1200 from, yeah. I mean, I don't know the span, uh, but 1200 that they like and recommend, I guess and that would be in print. I w- would think you don't want to have, yeah. And that are still available. Yeah. yeah. Just the starting, uh, the starting set there is a mm-hmm. lower number, but I'm really interested to see that. My favorite cool thing of the week is this bookshop in yeah. London. Okay, so Haywood Hill is a London bookshop, a little indie store. They are celebrating its 80th anniversary and they are giving their readers a gift. Well, one reader, one reader. is going to get the gift. Um, one winner is going to get the Library of a Lifetime Award, which will entitle them to one new handpicked hardcover every month for life delivered anywhere in the world. Mm. To win, readers have to nominate the book that has meant the most to them, and then the winner will be chosen at random in a drawing. The title must have been published in English or translated into English after 1936, mm-hmm. which was the year that the bookstore was founded. Uh, so, like, so they tweeted at us directly to tell us about this. Did you see that? Did they yeah, really? Yeah, they, no, you, I you guys it. might be interested in that. I mean, we saw it in other places too. The the article will link in the show notes is to the Guardian, but they they tweeted us the link to the Guardian. So they th- thought you guys might be interested. So you guys out there should enter. Go go yes. enter this. Go enter. Uh, go please and, and win. 
And it's inspired by a subscription service that they do called A Year in Books, which offers a reading consultation with the shop's booksellers to determine your interests. And then they send you a new book each month. So even if you don't win, you could do that. But please go tell these Haywood Hill booksellers about the book that has meant the most to you. This is awesome. Also, I've seen some people grinching. It's like, oh, it's not really a library of a lifetime because I read more than one book. You know what? Go, Go stick it somewhere. You know, I, I, I can't listen to that. <laughs> right, like just the sheer come on. grinchiness of that. Like, Just just get out of here. Get, we're not. Someone we, wants we, to this get... isn't for, don't enter if you think that. Don't, don't. Nobody cares no how one much cares. you read. Yeah, we're, we all read a lot. Go uh, give yourself a prize and clap one-handedly to yourself. I, 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 that may, there were some comments when I, I linked to it in Critical Link. It was the headlines thrown on Facebook. Like, oh, it's yeah. not really a library of a lifetime. Because yeah, I was like, you know what? Why just get out. I mean, the most annoying, Yeah, the most annoying comment on the internet is this list is not comprehensive. Yeah. And then the second most annoying comment is this free thing is not Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or it's not enough for me because I read 10,000 books a day. You know what? Did you know how special yeah, I am? Yeah, great. I, you know what? I'm so glad for you. And you know what? I never We're all very it. impressed. Yeah, I'm surprised. Also, now you don't get to enter it's the easy to, It's easy to read that much when no one wants to be around you. Uh, <laughs> it's not hard. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> well, I, was, I, was, I really got under my skin. It really bothered me. <laughs> I'm just delighted whenever you're the mean no, one. I, so it's a nice break. The, the thing is, I'm much meaner than you in real life. <laughs> like, by a factor of 10. I don't know. Maybe five. You're pretty mean. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm pretty you are mean. Stone cold. I, I can. I, I. Yeah, I'm not really mean. I'm more cold. If that makes any sort of difference, I can be that way. Um, Nineteen thirty. Let's pick I'm ourselves. Just, what, what we, we're here. not going to enter because we have enough books. We don't need this. Even though I'd love to get it. Uh, what would you nominate? I meant the most to them. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's a moving target. Yeah. Right? Like well, right now, let's step into this but, river. Yeah. Yeah, in this river, it's when women were. Well, I was gonna. I, I was. I was looking at the shelf. And I was like, "Yep." Yeah, Surprising, that's... absolutely no one. <laughs> this is a tough one for me. Um, the the time one actually matters here because I would it's usually pick the Iliad. Achilles? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. If I had to guess for you, that's what I would have guessed. Uh, Gilead is probably you could pick a worse book. I mean, I mean that's that mm-hmm. you could. I mean, for me, like I'm not sure that's it necessarily. Um, Invisible Man, Gilead. When I'm, I'm trying to think of when I was younger, because like there's a influence factor. Yeah. Like the younger you are, the more you know. Letters right. to a Young Poet by Rilke. I think that mm-hmm. came out. That, yeah, I should know that. Um, Dickinson was after Leaves of Whip, uh, Leaves of Grass. Those are also a lot of my standard picks of like top ten or after. You know, Gilead would probably be. I'd say something about that. Um, yeah. I think right there, and it doesn't say. Um. They can look forward to a lot. It's, it sounds like they're going to pick a book for you. Like it's not just going to be a book, right? Like they're, It mm-hmm. sounds like you're going to have some input that affects the output of what you get, um, which is cool too. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, that's kind of the holy grail of these subscription things, right? It would be right. if you could get one in the mail that is picked Magically for selected, you. selected, yeah. Right. Um, I might enter this. Yeah, what, you can't. We if should. you win it, we could. What are we gonna do? You, you're gonna win this. You get a hundred books in the mail for free, and you're gonna enter one from London. Uh, come on, that, that's uncool. <laughs> you can't do that. I can't. I can't enter to win curated books in the mail. Uh, you get a hundred. You curate yourself. <laughs> Reader, curate thyself. <laughs> that's my next tattoo. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, of course, of course, enter. I, I mean, I, I look down on a, you, but you can go ahead. And well, I mean, fine. I'm used to yeah, that because yeah, yeah. well, you know I'm you're very four tall. Four feet taller. Yeah, I'm eight and a half feet tall and 75 years old. <laughs> we have reduced ourselves to height jokes. Yeah, we I know. We got to move on. Okay, we got one more sponsor. And we got a couple wrap up things. Uh, PRH Book Clubs is back. So we've talked about this a little bit before. If you're looking for something, for uh, may, I don't think we mentioned this last time. I think I saw one someone on the Book Riot contributor Slack say that their book club was going to do pick a book, but they were all going to commit to listening to it on audio at the oh, same cool. time, which I thought was really interesting and see how that um, changes. But also if you're in a book club, want to be in a book club, find it hard to get through the book or just looking for a different way to get through your book. Listen to it. Um, go to penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash book club. Get ideas, recipes for cooking while you listen, recommendations to make your next book cl- cl- meeting even more enjoyable. They're also giving away a, uh, a prize pack that contains physical copies of the Underground Railroad, which is talked about Behold the Dreamers, 
A Gentleman in Moscow. I'm hearing a lot about that that just came out. And in such good company. They're all great book club picks, but you know, you wouldn't have to share them with your book club if you won these. Go to penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash book club. Check out some titles, enter some prizes, find out some stuff. Uh, thanks for them to sponsoring the show. Comixology. Can we talk about this? This is in our yeah, ongoing uh, one of our ongoing interest subscriptions. Speaking of subscription services, um, Comixology, as you may or may not know, is the now Amazon owned. Oh, there goes my there goes my timer. I have a thing to say. Don't forget to pick up the kids in a half hour, so I don't forget my children. Um, hey, I have to go pick up the dog. You have to, you have to pick up the kids. Um, Comixology is all you can. Well, both all you can eat. They have an all you can eat comic subscription service, but they also then sell comics um, directly, digital comics, mm-hmm. and they are going into a new line, which is exclusive to Comixology, which as subscriptions go, this is not something we've seen from your Scribs, your Oysters, your, you know, any, any book related yeah, subscription right. it, it services. Yeah, makes them a publisher. Yeah. Well, it's more like Netflix, right? Like this yeah, is, right. the, um, Michelle and I are getting through Luke Cage right now. And I have to say, one of the reasons we're still on Netflix is for the exclusive stuff. Mm-hmm. We're there for Master of None. We're there for uh, Bloodline. We're there for, uh, I'm just listing things we watch on Netflix yeah, now. That's easy. Not, we just binged through Easy, which is Oh, great. I heard that's interesting too. And um, and it becomes another, you can't get anywhere else, right? You can't get those things. So you're more interested in poning up for it. This is something I've wondered if a script could try. Like how much would it cost them to pay? Oh, I don't know. I'm just trying to... I, I, I'm guessing for the top tier selling authors, you know, your John Greens, your Rollings, mm-hmm. your you, folks like that, it doesn't make any sense. But could you pay enough to a middle selling author, but has a really um, loyal fan base? You know what I mean? You could do this experiment with uh, N.K. Jemison. Oh, yeah. Like, good example. A, yeah. Great example. Perfect example. Right. Where. You know, she's looking for other ways to monetize her work because she's not selling in, you know, in the six digits or seven digits per thing. But she has a fan base that seems committed. Would this work? I'm more interested in not comicsology service itself, but in sort of how it would work in mm-hmm. books itself. Um, I think it would. Yeah, it would. If you had the right mix. You had the right mix of people. Because the other secret, I mean, we've talked about this before, is a lot of times... Even authors we all know they don't sell that many like it may not take yeah, no, that much it may not jobs. take that much money to get an exclusive I'm just trying you know I'm really I'm just trying to think here um who would be a you know yeah Jemison as genre ones especially genre ones would mm-hmm. make a lot of sense too um oh, I'm I'm completely yeah, like blanking on ideas I'm completely blanking on ideas it's embarrassing you put yourself on the spot. You want me to save you and talk about something else? No, yeah, save me. But I'm. Uh, you can't save me. I'm. I've, this is a crash and burn. I, no one I, can My save brain me is now. completely fried. Yeah, let's talk about something <laughs> so, else. This is my final cool thing yeah. of the week. Um, Nimona by yes. Noel Stevenson, the great graphic novel that was huge last year. Basically, everyone who read it loved it. Uh, if you have not read it yet, you should. Uh, but it's being released. It was released actually this week on October fourth as a full cast audio book mm. um, by. Harper Audio, and this sort of this made some ripples in our um, back channels. Oh yeah, very excited! How do you turn a graphic novel into an audiobook? And this is not the first time that a graphic novel has been turned into an audiobook. There are actually companies that do exclusively yep. that, um, but it's a great sort. Of, it's like a zany, whimsical, fun, smart, very clever story with some good pop culture stuff too. Um, that. I think would lend itself well, if any graphic novel does, um, to being an audiobook. So that is, it, it's out now, it's out this week. We'll have a link um, to SoundCloud where you can listen to a sample of it mm. in the show notes. And then if you dig it, you can download it. Uh, you know, you can buy it. Yeah, Joe from, Hill's Lock um, and Key, I guess, had a real yeah. high production oh, yeah, I heard about quality effort um, mm-hmm. went into it. Uh, is great. I, I thought it was great. Yeah, so much fun. It seems very hard to me to make it into an audiobook. All, all mm-hmm. it seems all graphic novels, you know, yeah. for obvious reasons, much harder than prose. But there's a lot of there's great voice and like fun characters and there's story in this. Yeah. Like I guess if you're if it's a graphic novel that's largely about the art, that would be much more challenging. But there's a lot of story mm-hmm. uh, to Nimona that I think will will lend itself well. So I'm excited about that. I loved the graphic novel. I still check it don't out know audio. enough about the economics of audiobooks to have any sense of why this makes sense 
financially. Because, I mean, it, it sold, uh, it was a popular graphic novel. And I think it was a finalist for the National yes, Book Award. Yes, it was. Award. It was. I, I just, I guess I'm surprised that there's, someone did a PL for this project. Like, yeah, you know what? We could, like, we could try maybe it. try it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But you know, I'm thrilled if it does. I'm yeah, over the moon Yeah, and it's like it a... Does kind of a middle grade audience yeah, for the book. So you could, it, you could be like guiding kids. Like I could see mm. this in classrooms or reading with your kids. Yeah, like family road listening trip. To, yeah. Listening to the audiobook while mm. the kids can page through and watch oh, what's I happening. Like that. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. I like that idea. Uh, I think that would be, and Stevenson wrote for, I'm, I was thinking about that because of Lumberjanes. Stevenson wrote mm-hmm. for Lumberjanes, which uh, lends itself to a fun read aloud as well. If you're into like voices and monsters and shenanigans, mm-hmm. which who's not. Uh, so that's out cool this week. We well, This was all over the yeah. place this week. We had all sorts of stuff, but I think that's our show. Well, we had one, we had, we had lots of feelings and thoughts to get mm-hmm. out and then for everything else feelings. sort of came in a jumble down the mountainside after the big boulder. <laughs> The, the rare uh, geological metaphor from me. <laughs> like a diamond in the rough. Uh, Who even so, are you? Well, thanks so much to our sponsors <laughs> this week. Uh, PRH Audio, The Other Einstein, uh, Casper and Bombas for sponsoring the show. As always, you can find show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. You can see all of our great shows there. Navigate, find the show notes. You can email us. I'd like to hear your, uh, we won't, we won't, castigate you online if you have an opinion that's different than ours about Ferrante or anything else really um, but I'd, I'd sure like to hear those at podcast at bookriot.com that's our email address um, and we'll talk to you guys next week yeah have a good one <laughs>